Hello, and welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by American Jewish Committee. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines to help you understand what they all mean for America, Israel, and the Jewish people. I'm your host, Manya Brashear-Pashman. Rabbi Sandra Lawson is an activist, public speaker, musician, and the inaugural director of Racial Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion for Reconstructing Judaism, which includes the college and congregations. She's also a social media influencer, using TikTok and Snapchat to teach portions of the Torah and Spotify to curate special Shabbat playlists. She is with us now to talk about the role she sees herself serving in the American Jewish community, her experience with social media, both good and bad, and to talk about the importance of allyship for the Jewish community. Rabbi Lawson, welcome to People of the Pod. Hi, thanks for having me. So for those listeners who are not part of your social media audience, tell us a little bit about your journey to the rabbinate. Were there people who influenced you along the way? What inspired you to be ordained? I am a Black female-identified rabbi, and I was ordained in 2018 by the Reconstruction's Rabbinical College. And sometime around 2004, I was starting a master's degree in sociology. And my plan was, after I got out of the military, was to get a PhD in sociology and to, you know, be an academic. And my wonderful vision, I saw myself wandering around beautiful campuses, you know, teaching wasn't in this vision, but I just saw myself wandering around campus and being an academic and a professor. And I knew that roadmap, but I knew exactly what I had to do to make that happen. And the more I got involved in Jewish activism, with the help of my friend, Rabbi Joshua Lesser, the less interest I had in getting a PhD in sociology. So I felt this very strange pull to go to rabbinical school, which made absolutely no sense to me. I had not planned that. That was not part of my plan. So all of you people who think that you have a crazy idea that makes no sense, you should not ignore it. And maybe you should try to, especially for people who have plans and they like plans, there was no roadmap. There was no plan for me to be a Black female rabbi. But when Alyssa Staten was ordained in 2009, the first Black female to be ordained by an American rabbinical seminary, rabbinical college. And I was like, oh, okay, this is something I could do. There's somebody out there that's already done it. You mentioned military. So take us back a little bit further. Tell us a little bit about your upbringing. Yeah. So I was raised in a non-religious home and I grew up in a military family and I went to college in Northeast Missouri State University, which is now Truman State University. And I wasn't doing very well. I had a lot of family stuff going on and So I like to jokingly say I joined the family business because I come from a military family. It was never, you know, the plan. You must go to the military. That was not the family that I was in. But when my dad realized that I was, you know, having some focus issues, he suggested maybe you should think about joining the military. And I took that up. And honestly, I count my choice to join the military as one of the three best decisions ever made for my life. Joining the military, marrying my wife, and being ordained in that order, because that's the order that they happened in. But the military gave me structure and focus and helped to give me ways to accomplish goals, especially goals that may seem very hard. And I don't think, I know I wouldn't be where I am today if I had not joined the military. Many people wonder how I, being raised in a non-religious home, became a religion reporter. How did a person raised in a non-religious home become a rabbi? So I did not have really good experience with clergy. 
And as an openly queer person, you know, I, I came out as a teenager and I, as my mom would say, I was too smart for my britches. I understood how black people in the United States became Christian and I would have nothing to do with it. And my experiences of being in church environments, which wasn't a lot, you know, I didn't like it. And I always felt like somebody was going to tell me to go to hell. <laughs> the few preachers I was around seemed to be very misogynistic, homophobic. So I just did not have the best experience because I wasn't raised in any kind of religious environment that was nurturing. So after I got out of the military, I met my friend Joshua Lesser, and he's all, he's a rabbi. And from him and people in my orbit that I started to meet, I have started to figure out there were other types of clergy across religions um, and, and that it was okay to be queer and religious. And Judaism seemed all right to me because when I visited my friend Joshua's synagogue, there was a lot of activists that I already knew from the neighborhood. <laughs> I mean, I did go out and I did party sometimes, but, you know, for the most part, I was at a big party here on Friday night. So going to the synagogue on Fridays might be one of the reasons why I kept going there for the social atmosphere. And because of how politics works and the world works, I found myself working with a bunch of activists in 2004, shortly after the Supreme Court said that, that gay people were not going to go to jail for having relationships. But then states decided that they would try to pass constitutional amendments, banning something that didn't even exist, banning same-sex marriage. And we won, but obviously in the end, <laughs> but that first battle of battling state constitutions, I found myself with clergy, mostly clergy, but as a religious person, trying to keep the state out of people's bedrooms. So I was in this coalition of religious folks who many of us didn't agree on a lot, but we agreed that the state had no business in our bedroom. And so I started doing more of that work and became less and less interested in getting a PhD, which is how that kind of happened. And I just wanted to learn more. I figured I could still accomplish the things that I wanted to do, but I couldn't ignore this calling, I guess you could say. And I'm glad I did. I mean, it was, <laughs> rabbinical school is not easy. It was in many ways harder than being in the military, but it was, it was worth it. Well, now, not all Jews are white. That is a fact. And even though that is often the narrative that we hear. And I'm curious, I mean, there have always been Jews of color, but now more than ever. And I'm curious why you think the demographics of the Jewish community are changing. So statistically, yes, the demographics are changing. But I do wonder how much they have changed because we didn't really start paying attention to Jews of color as a society until recently. You could probably go back 20 years, find the first demographic study that actually looked at Jews of color. And I believe that demographic study was done by a property of Holoshon. I'm not totally sure about that. That's the first demographic study that I knew of. And I think in that study, it said that Jews of color were about 20% of the American population. Globally, you could easily argue, and it's probably true, that Jews are brown. Most Jews are not white. But the American story, the United States story, and even maybe even the Canadian and South American story, but the American story in particular it has been a narrative of Eastern European Jews coming to the United States. And we even erased that first group of Jews that came here, which were Sephardic Jews. And you could make an argument that they were probably, today would be categorized as people of color. Maybe, maybe not. But many of those folks assimilated into American culture. And then after that, each subsequent wave of Jews came from Europe. You know, prior to the Nazi regime escaping pogroms and other atrocities that happened. And then, of course, trying to immigrate here when the Nazi regime took over and then plus after World War II. And the longer those folks, the longer Jews have lived in the United States, 
because Jews are not a racial category. They are lots of races. The longer Jews live in the United States, the more they are like the other demographics in the United States. So that means you can make an argument that the same percentage of people that are queer outside of the Jewish community, you're going to find that similar percentage within the Jewish community, the same level of racial diversity that exists outside the Jewish community, you're going to start to see in the Jewish community. Plus other forms of immigration, intermarriage and adoption, all those things combined have caused us to look at the numbers. And also we could argue the numbers are increasing and people are asking for people to pay more attention to it because of racism and microaggressions and bias that exists in the Jewish world. And it sounds like in taking this look at the demographics, it's actually prompting people to look at the history and see that it is not a narrative of that all Jews are white, that you know it does shine a spotlight on the Sephardic Jewish history and the Persian Jews who came in the 1970s, you know, the diversity of Judaism. And like you mentioned, the Persian Jews, I even left them out too, but that's really, we just tell the Jewish community has just gotten very comfortable with telling a narrative that our history is Ashkenazi, our food is Ashkenazi. And what's happened is what we think is Jewish is actually from a particular culture of Jews that came from a particular region of the world, but it's not all Jewish food. I'm curious what you do see as your kind of your mission and your purpose as a Jewish leader, and has that evolved since you have been ordained? Yeah, you know, I, I mean, I think some things I knew, like I was well aware of this, you know, not many black rabbis ordained by the major seminaries in the United States or the major progressive seminaries of the United States. And when I say progressive, I mean, you know, reform, reconstructionist and conservative, and also renewal and humanist and other folks out there that I may be forgetting about. So basically like your non-Orthodox streams. And I'm saying that because I actually don't know much about the demographics of the Orthodox world and how many black or brown rabbis. I know there, there are black and brown rabbis. Plus the Orthodox world is a lot of different denominations within Orthodoxy. So it's harder to count. So I knew that just by that, that I would be like a groundbreaker, but I wasn't trying to set out to be a groundbreaker. I really wanted to do my part in the Jewish world, do my part to be a leader in the Jewish world. And I also knew with that, I would be shedding more light on the racial diversity of American Jews. And also since people like boxes, you know, like I'm black, I'm queer, <laughs> I'm in an interracial marriage. And there's a lot of uniqueness in that. And I think a lot of folks in our society can relate to that. And some people find that very cool and other people find it very scary. So how do you handle those who find it scary? So as a Black woman who has lived in the United States my entire life, none of the scariness surprises me. And so I grew up in this society that has always seen me as marginalized because our society views. Actually, I was at a conference recently and this guy asked me, when I come into Jewish spaces, do I think people see my blackness, my race first, or my rabbi first? I think is what he said. I said, oh, they see my race first. People see me as a black woman. That is obviously the first thing that they see and the first thing that they process. And so I'm kind of used to it. And I've had a long history of dealing with microaggressions and racism in the, in the Jewish world. Because I'm a rabbi, I know what our texts say very intimately. And I'm still learning, don't get me wrong, but there's no like end to learning. But 
when people say inappropriate things or people do things like I have, we like, we're the people of the book and we like to back up the things that we say. So I know what previous generations of rabbis thought on particular issues and I can bring proof text to show, like if, if somebody's going to argue with me and say that women can't be rabbis and they're going to bring a text, I got other texts, tons of texts to say that it's to- totally okay for me to be a rabbi. You know, when people say, well, queer people shouldn't be rabbis. I got texts to say that that text you have is wrong. And let me tell you this other rabbi said about it, you know, so that's one of the wonderful things about having this education. And I can help, you know, other queer folks, black or brown folks who are struggling to be Jewish. I'm like, hey, let me let's let's go over this text. And like, you're totally fine. Be who you are. And that person's wrong. <laughs> let me tell you why. And so many folks may have been told that it's okay to be gay, but that still doesn't help when they're dealing with homophobia or it doesn't help when they're dealing with racism. And to have a rabbi articulate why it's okay for them to be who they are in the Jewish world, even Orthodox folks, I've had conversations with Orthodox folks. It's another lens. So I'm not just a rabbi who's an ally. I'm a rabbi who is in this fight with other queer folks, other black and brown folks. I'm even allies to white parents who have black children. And you know, to have a rabbi that actually represents the diversity that is the Jewish people has been very helpful for folks. We can't really talk about any racism you faced or any anti-Semitism or homophobia in isolated manner. Can you talk about the importance of understanding intersectionality and how that affects the way you've experienced hate? So I said the intersections of many identities. And so when you look at intersectionality, in this case, like the intersection of race, gender, uh, and queerness, what happens is when someone sits at the intersection I don't deal with homophobia in the same way that my white gay colleagues do, because I'm not just gay. And I don't deal with racism as a straight Black person would deal with. So those intersections cause new forms of discrimination. And how those new forms play out in the Jewish world is anti-Semitic. And this is, and I'll, I'll break that down. So the thing I do is give you an example. When I was a campus rabbi, the assistant director, a family came in, which is, came into the Jewish center, the Hillel Center, a mother and daughter. And the mother is like, I want to meet the rabbi. And so the assistant director said, sure, I'll call her. She'll come down. So I get a call and there's a family here that wants to meet you. Sure, on my way. So I come down the stairs, the assistant director. So an authority figure who's also white introduces me. Hi, this is also, this is our rabbi, Rabbi Sandra Lawson. The mother looks at me with a very strange look on her face, which I would only describe as confused. And her only response is, are you ordained? I was like, yeah. And then she repeats that in some form or another, two other times. And I'm looking at the daughter who was the one I actually care about. I mean, I'm not saying I don't care about parents, but I want to make a good impression on the future students coming to the campus. So I got to shut this conversation down so we can move on. And so all I could say to her is after like the third time, you know, if you follow me to my office, I have a business card that says rap. (laughs) And, you know, maybe that'll help or something like that. Because the daughter actually had this really embarrassed look on her face. Now, I can joke about it. And some people might be confused. But in what world do we live in where an uh, an authority figure says, this is the rabbi, and the mother's response is, are you ordained? As if any nationally ranked university would hire someone who's not ordained. And that's what I'm talking about, new forms of discrimination. 
Let's talk about social media, because you do have a significant social media presence. AJC's State of Anti-Semitism in America 2022 report found that 64% of American Jews have experienced anti-Semitism online and in social media. 85% of American Jews between the ages of 18 and 29 say they encountered it, a reflection of who's on social media, right? But I imagine anti-Semitism is pretty standard for you, given your significant presence. How do you protect yourself emotionally? And have you been able to engage in any of those purveyors of anti-Semitism? Yes, I encounter most of my anti-Semitism online. And not to say mean things about TikTok, but most of the anti-Semitism that I have dealt with has been on TikTok. I think, you know, part of it might just be the video and maybe it just lands in my brain more. And maybe because Twitter feeds are much shorter, but I do. I encounter any kind of anti-Semitic stuff you can think of. I have encountered it online. Back to one of the things you said earlier, I actually personally have not in IRL, in real life, encountered anti-Semitism from Black people. But online, uh, actually, that's not true. There was one time, but I didn't have to stand up for myself, which is kind of interesting because I was in a room full of Black queer women, and a Black woman said something anti-Semitic. And I didn't have to say anything because the women had my back. I was the only Jewish person in the room. The woman thought that she was speaking to, she didn't think there was anybody Jewish in the room. And just went on this whole like anti-Semitic statement about Jewish people. And my friend put her hand on my leg and was like, we got this. Like. I didn't have to say anything. I mean, that's really all I remember because it was a long time ago. So I just taught a class at a conference on social media. There are different types of anti-Semitism, all bad, (laughs) but right-wing anti-Semitism that happens online is different than anti-Semitism that's coming from the left. Anti-Semitism on the right, right right-wing extreme folks, and I'm not talking about people who hold conservative views, but right-wing extremists, Anti-Semitism is core to their bias belief. It's core to what they think about Black people and other racialized groups, and Jews are tied into all of that. In fact, the foundation of their hate is Jews. Anti-Semitism on the left is often coming from misunderstanding uh, old anti-Semitic tropes that are just part of our culture that people just don't even think of as anti-Semitic. For example, I had a student once say that she believed in the loving God of the New Testament, not the wrathful God of the Old Testament, which I said, ow, that's one of the oldest anti-Semitic tropes that came from the Christian church or Catholic church years ago. And some education around that, oh, I'm so sorry, because people realize that it's hurtful. And if you've never met another Jew before, you don't even realize how bad that is. Same with some of the racist tropes that have gone around through the years that people may not even realize are racist, or some of the other tropes about other different groups of people. So when I encounter anti-Semitism on the left, particularly in real life, not necessarily online, I can have a conversation and usually correct it. And how do I deal with anti-Semitism online? For the most part, I block people. I just block them. It's very easy. And I've been on social media a long time, and it used to not be so easy to block people. I don't really engage with hateful people online. Like when people ask me questions and I answer the question, and then like somebody asked, like somebody, it's just benign, but I was told by someone said that women can't be rabbis. I'm like, well, that's not true. Women have been ordained with whatever. And then usually that's it. But if somebody keeps going on about 
you know, they're quoting some biblical verse that makes no sense to the Jewish people, but only makes sense to a particular group of Christians, or they believe the amount of people who know absolutely nothing about Judaism, but act like they do or believe that they do is kind of interesting online. But when people say mean and hurtful things, not just disagreeing, but when people, when I get pictures of ovens, for example, <laughs> there's no point. What am I going to say? Just I'm just going to I'm going to report it and then I'll block it. I'll block them. That's it. There are Jews online who could try to constructively engage with some of these people, not necessarily to change their mind, but they know that they're making a video for somebody else to hear. They're writing a tweet for somebody else to see. I don't really want to do that. I personally try my best to spread more positivity in the world. And when I do say things that I know will land hard for people, they're usually coming from my own personal experience. I love that story you just told about the woman in the group saying, you know, don't worry, we've got this, because it speaks to the importance of our allies wherever we go. I saw an interview with Pink recently about her most recent album, Trustfall. And it's called Trustfall because, as she said, getting up in the morning and confronting life on a day-to-day basis is really an act of trust. And you're hoping that as you fall, there's a community there to support you, you know, or a religious tradition or something, some sort of support network out there for you to catch you when you fall. That, to me, was such a lovely way of talking about the importance of our allies On that topic, I kind of want to segue. I mean, in the past year, there have been some very high-profile incidents of anti-Semitism. Whoopi Goldberg shared some common misconceptions about the Holocaust. Kanye West, of course, spewed all kinds of anti-Semitism rooted largely in white supremacist ideology. Kyrie Irving promoted a film filled with tropes rooted in black supremacist ideology. You have said that as a Black Jewish person, as a Black Jewish leader, you're tired of white people demanding a response from Black Jews every time a Black celebrity says something grossly anti-Semitic. So forgive me if that's how this comes across by listing all of these high-profile incidents, but they did grab headlines. So I'm, I'm curious, I'd like to hear from you, is it unfair to point that out? Or is this something we need to confront and figure out how to move forward in a constructive way? Did it open a conversation? In other words. So I'm going to address that, but I also want to go back to what I have said about I'm tired. To unpack that a little bit more, I'm tired of like when some black or black celebrity sticks their foot in their mouth and they say something they don't realize is harmful, then I get tons of messages from people that I know. What do you think about this? What do you think about this? Will you say something? You have to say something, whatever. At the same time, though, when a black celebrity or brown celebrity puts their foot in their mouth, news agencies or my white colleagues are quick to respond to the anti-Semitism that they see without any nuance around race, because they can't speak to the race, because most of the white folks in the Jewish world, most of my white colleagues in the Jewish world have never had to speak around race in a nuanced kind of way. So I have asked my colleagues publicly and other folks, you know, you might not be the best person to address the racism coming from Black football player, Black comedian, Black whatever, because you don't understand how the intersection plays out. So there's that. The other thing is that it astonishes me the amount of attention that comes from the Jewish world when a Black celebrity says something that is anti-Semitic. Knowing the level of power that Black people have in our society compared to white folks, I do not see that that's different than saying it doesn't happen. 
I do not see the same level of attention when white politician, white celebrity says something anti-Semitic. And part of that is how racism plays out in our society. One example, main one, the big boogeyman of the Jewish world is Louis Farrakhan. In my personal life, I do not know any Black person that actually likes Louis Farrakhan. Nobody in my family ever has. But there are Black people that do. But to attack Louis Farrakhan without understanding anything about how he is seen in the Black community does a disservice to unpacking the anti-Semitism that is coming, that is spewing from him. And it doesn't help with education. So what is a productive or constructive way of addressing it? So more Black Jews need to be part of this conversation. More Black people. Like, so for example, if a Black person has been raised their whole life to believe that all Jews are white, and that plays into the narrative of how they see white people, and they've never seen a Black Jew, didn't even know that they existed, bringing a Black person to the conversation around anti-Semitism will go do a lot to change that narrative and to change how people see Jews. But there's so many like anti-Semitic tropes that might be true in a particular instance, but they're not like universally true. So like, you know, a black person, and I know black people who have slumlords who happen to be Jewish. I know that for sure. One of them also happens to be Jewish and black, but that's another story. And that is not a universal story for the American Jewish world, but it may be a particular story. And if only white people are addressing this stereotypical trope that's anti-Semitic, it's not going to do anything to change the narrative for the person actually experiencing it and how other people have experienced it. It's not going to do anything to change the narrative that many people of color have about Jews. I'm curious, as we confront anti-Semitism and other challenges that face the Jewish community, what can the wider Jewish community take from what I would call a spin on resilience. What can Black Joy add to the Jewish experience, which is already very much about resilience? I think in one case, I think that the larger Jewish world, so the larger white Jewish world in the United States, can learn a lot from Black people in the United States. We didn't come to the United States as a safe haven. The immigrant story of the American Jewish world is they were escaping some horrible condition and they came here. Not all, but that's part of the narrative. So the United States is a safe haven. And so there are many people wandering around in our society until recently they believed that anti-Semitism was dead. Many Jews believe in anti-Semitism was dead, or they thought they would never experience anti-Semitism where they are. But the reality, particularly after what happened in Pittsburgh, is I see more Jews in the United States, which is different than other countries, but in the United States, scared about anti-Semitism. Many have never had to think about it until recent history. Black people don't have that experience. Do I like it when overt racism shows up? No. Am I surprised by it? No. (laughs) I know that I live in a racist society. Racism has not gone away. It has evolved over time. may look different than today than my grandparents, thank goodness. But I still experience it on a regular, regular basis. So when I encounter it, Instead of like, for example, if I'm in a group with white people who I want to have a relationship with, I'm working with, if they say something that's light racist, like microaggression or something overt racist, or let's just stick with microaggressions. I'm not going to, unless I have to, but I'm not going to be like, I'm not, I'm not talking to you anymore (laughs) because you know, all you've really done is proven what I already think anyway, but I don't have the luxury of saying, I'm not going to talk to you anymore because you're racist. 
And I think many in the Jewish community, when they hear uh, anti-Semitism, particularly on the left, because that's the world that I live in, they just want to not engage with that anymore because they're just shocked. They didn't really understand that it was there. And so I think that the larger white Jewish community can learn from the black community how we have dealt with racism in our society to help the larger white Jewish community understand and deal with racism. Now, Black Joy, when I, I think I wrote that or did a podcast with my, my supervisor, Deborah Waxman, there is a difference for me. I love being Jewish. I was at a conference. I had a great time. I love everything about being Jewish. There is a relaxation when I'm in the presence of a majority community that happens to be people of color and Jewish. I'm more relaxed. My guard is down. Nobody's going to ask me how I became Jewish. And I can just be. I can just exist, you know, and, and be Jewish with other folks that are Jewish. Um, and, and larger white spaces, that is not the reality. Uh, you know, and so uh, being around, being with other black and brown Jews, um, it's a reminder for me uh, of black joy. So um, I did a podcast with Deborah Waxman and one of our board members named Shahana McKinney. Shahana McKinney is a black woman. Um, and I think we had planned to ask different questions, but when Shahana and I were on there, we were just talking about music and singing. <laughs> and then we talked about black joy and Deborah, who's not black, but was part of this conversation realized that we sort of needed to like, talk about what it, what black joy is. And also when I look at how white people talk about black history month versus how black people talk about black history month, white people seem to always start with a slave narrative. Look at how, what happened to them and where they are. And that is not necessarily the narrative that black people start with when we're talking about Black History Month, are talking about the history of Black people in our society. Yes, slavery happened. Yes, it's horrible. One of the worst things our society has ever done. Um, sadly, we have not learned a lot of lessons from it. And when people see me and they, they, they learn some of the things I've experienced, they don't understand how I can be happy. <laughs> you're like, you know, they, your life must be so bad. No, my life is really great, actually. <laughs> I'm so lucky. And horrible things happen to me, too. But I have built resilience over the years to deal with racism um, that um, other marginalized groups in our society have not had an entire history of. So I had Black parents who taught me. I was raised as a Black person in our society. Um, I've always known the history of our society. So nothing that our society does really surprises me. That doesn't mean I'm not hurt by it. Music plays a significant role in your life. Is that your way of incorporating joy into the Jewish experience? You know, I discovered my own need to play music while I was in rabbinical school. So we're talking about my early 40s. I've always loved music. So this need to play more music and to create more music is something that grew out of my uh, studying to be a rabbi, which is really why it's so cool to investigate the things that you think are a crazy idea. Because so much has opened up for me since I started studying to be a rabbi. It unlocked stuff that I was that I had locked away or didn't want to try. And music for me, I spend a lot of time in my head. Meaning, I, I get paid to think. I, you know, people want my my uh, consultation on stuff. Um, they want to know what I think about this. I help our senior staff. I'm always having hard conversations. I'm always trying to articulate 
hard things to other people so they can digest it and actually hear what I have to say. When I'm having those hard conversations with other people, music gets them out of here and gets them into their heart space so they can have empathy. And for me personally, um, music unlocks and let, you know, and lets me relax so I, that I can feel more. So I am in my own heart space and I'm not necessarily thinking through my head. Yeah, that makes so much sense. That makes so much sense. It really triggers the empathy, which is really what you need to engage and have real conversations and, and kind of break through some of the tensions. Well, Rabbi, thank you so much for tackling these, these hard topics, but also sharing a positive outlook and, and some tools that we as a community can use and things that we can learn from each other. Thanks for having me. And I, I love doing this stuff because I can meet new people and talk to people. So thank you. If you missed last week's episode, be sure to tune in for my conversation with Vladislav Davidson, the European culture correspondent for Tablet Magazine. One year after Russia's illegal invasion of Ukraine, he shared what he's witnessed as a war correspondent on the front lines and predicts the future for his beloved Ukraine and its Jewish community. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC. Our producer is Atara Lakritz. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, or learn more at ajc.org slash peopleofthepod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at ajc.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, please be sure to tell your friends, tag us on social media with hashtag peopleofthepod, and hop on to Apple Podcasts to rate us and write a review to help more listeners find us. Tune in next week for another episode of People of the Pod. 